May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. This week, we are honored to be joined by the Honorable Justice Norman St. George, who is the Chief Administrative Judge in the State Courts for Nassau County. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to all the listeners. And uh, we have Judge St. George with us today because he is... I think the principal author of a set of protocols and procedures for virtual bench trial proceedings in the New York state courts. And we want to talk to him about that, find out a little bit more about what's been happening with virtual trial proceedings and what's likely to happen going forward. So your honor, I mean, it's been a monumentous thing to watch the New York state court system move from in-person to online proceedings in the last year? I mean, I'm sure from your point of view, it must be incredible. It absolutely was mind-boggling. This is my third year as the administrative judge of Nassau County. And after 17 years on the bench, I knew when I accepted the position that it would be challenging, but no one could have imagined, and I certainly didn't imagine, navigating through a major world pandemic as the administrative judge of Nassau County. But I have to say that because of the leadership of the chief judge, Chief Judge DeFiori, Chief Administrative Judge Marks, and the Deputy Chief Administrative Judges Caruso, Silver, and Mendelssohn, we were able to navigate through and we're still navigating through the storm. I must say, you've all done a tremendous job, and I don't only say that because I want judges to like me, which in general I do, (laughs) but I I think it's entirely accurate. I think it's fair to say that the New York state court system didn't really have the infrastructure in place for massive virtual proceedings in March of 2020. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, we're ready in the courts for every type of emergency. And, and you, as a practicing litigation attorney, know we're ready if there's a fire, if there's an active shooter, if there's a bomb threat, if there, there are dis- disorderly individuals, but a pandemic is uh, not within our imagination. Right. Well, here we are. So how did you come? You're the chief administrative judge in Nassau County, but you've drafted uh, virtual bench trial protocols for the entire state. How did you come to get that assignment? You know, sometimes when you make a recommendation, you are actually volunteering for the job, and that's how it came about. The transition really to the virtual world was what happened first, and it was overnight. Uh, We're talking about January, February, March, we have eight courthouses in Nassau County and we were operating as normal. We knew about the coronavirus, but it was far away and we weren't concerned about it. And it wasn't until mid-March where it really was affecting us here in Long Island. And so we went from, at the direction of the chief judge, we went from regular operations on March 13th, which was a Friday. And then she directed that all courts through the state combine in every district all of the courthouses into one courthouse. So we combined eight courthouses into one, which was a county court, and we went from 1,200 judicial and non-judicial personnel working throughout Nassau County to 100 by Monday. And so you can imagine that was a monumental task, and we only handled 
essential matters in person in that court building and each type of court had one courtroom. So family court, we had a courtroom, Supreme Court, criminal court, where those courts generally operated in an entire courthouse. And then a couple of weeks later, there was a decision to then expand the matters that could be handled to pretty much everything, but to do it virtually. And to do that, we had over 90 judges that were at home and we sent them all laptops and they received training on how to operate uh, virtually. And uh, instead of having walk-in individuals coming into one court building, each of the court types would have a clerk in the courtroom that would manage. At that point, we were using Skype for business and the courts, each of the judges then from home were, were conferencing cases, resolving cases, taking pleas. And it took a couple of months for everyone to, to get proficient. But really by May, by May, we were operational virtually. So that, that was the background. And some judges admittedly would tell you that they never turned on a computer before. So to go from that to be operational virtually was really miraculous. But then the idea came, the only thing that was missing was bench trials. And many judges were doing virtual bench trials and there was no consistency in how they were getting done. The Court of Claims only does bench trials. And so in one of the discussions, and we would have daily meetings of all the administrative judges throughout the state to coordinate how we were handling the courts through this pandemic, I suggested that we have a statewide manual or guide so we could have some consistency, uniformity, and also combine the best practices of all the judges who were doing bench trials virtually. So that's how it came about. It was, it was a suggestion, and uh, I became the person to do it. All right. So you've put out this incredible document that's available on the NewYorkCourts.gov website called Virtual Bench Trial Protocols and Procedures, in its 31 pages and covers a variety of topics. Did you have help assembling this? I hope you didn't have to do the whole thing. Absolutely, absolutely. It, I, would, I, I, I can't even take credit. I won't take credit. It was a complete collaboration of the best practices throughout the state. I had numerous conversations with the deputy chief administrative judges, with all the other administrative judges, with the supervising judges, with trial judges, and basically, this is a compilation of what everyone is doing that works. We also, once, once we compiled all of these best practices, we submitted those for review and comment to the various bar associations, various district attorneys, legal aid society, and they all had input and, and we incorporated all of the thoughts and comments and concerns into what you referred to as the virtual bench trial protocols and procedures uh, manual. Let's, uh, and, and we're not gonna go through the whole thing because we don't have that kind of time, but let me maybe ask you questions about a few of the items that I find particularly interesting. And the, the first one that pops right off at me is decorum because I'm litigating from my attic in a house in the Hudson Valley of New York. And I'm darn comfortable here, but it's hard to know as an attorney when you go on, how am I supposed to act other than I assume I'm supposed to still be professional and call your honor, your honor, and that kind of thing. Yes. And that is something that we really point out specifically 
and that we want not only the judges are, are obviously aware of it, but the attorneys and the litigants, witnesses, it is a formal proceeding. It is a bench trial. The conduct of the bench trial should be the same as the conduct and decorum that occur in a courtroom because it is a virtual courtroom. Sometimes you don't think that you have to specify everything um, because people should know. And sometimes you don't realize that you would have to specify things until you see someone appear in an undershirt or, you know, with a shirt and tie and they stand up and they have shorts on. Or you saw recently there was uh, an attorney that appeared in a, a matter and he had a cat face and they called and he kept saying, I'm not a cat. And to uh, most recently, there was a, a litigant who appeared in court while he was performing an operation. It was a, a, a surgeon. And when the video turned on, he, there was a patient on the gurney and he was operating. And he says, well, this is, I couldn't get any time off. And so he thought that that was appropriate to appear in court while operating. So that is why we specify the decorum, that it is a formal proceeding. You should dress like you would dress in a courtroom. We don't want to see you having you know, uh, a, uh, a full dinner. Uh, you shouldn't be eating. You shouldn't be drinking. No day drinking during the proceeding. No smoking. <laughs> You know, some people feel, yeah, obviously you can't smoke in a courtroom, but if you're in your house and you're used to smoking, some people think, well, they can just smoke. Well, there's no smoking, there's no chewing gum. So the, everyone needs to imagine themselves in a courtroom, notwithstanding the fact that they may actually be in an attic. Right. And I think that, you know, for matters that are sensitive and confidential, right, you need to be careful who's within earshot of the proceedings, right? You have to limit access. Absolutely. And, and, and we spell that out. You know, one of, the, one of the challenges is when you're doing a virtual bench trial, and, and you know, uh, most of the components are the same, whether you are in person or virtual, such as an opening statement or a closing statement. But the challenges are as they relate to evidence testimonial, documentary, and physical evidence. How do we ensure reliability? We do it in a courtroom because the witness is there with us and we see that the witness doesn't have any other documents. The witness has no one there talking to them, him or her. And so that, that, that's a lot of what we tackle in this guide. How do we ensure the reliability and the accuracy of the evidence when we are not with those people who are participating in the proceeding. Right. You have to make sure the witness doesn't have somebody else in the room signaling or isn't on a phone getting texts or isn't otherwise being coached during the process. Exactly. And so as part of the protocols, there is a stipulation that the attorney sign and the court will so order, and it outlines the expectations uh, that the court has of the attorneys and the expectations of the litigants and the witnesses and so we go through with respect to a witness, before the witness starts to testify, the judge will go through an inquiry. Is there anyone in the room with you? Do you understand no one should be in the room with you? Do you have any papers around? You understand that you can't refer to any notes. You need your cell phone turned off. So these are the things that we require a witness to attest to. And then we also require a witness to have it their, his or her actual background, which needs to be professional, so we can see what's happening behind the witness. And we ask the witness at the beginning of the testimony and periodically 
throughout the testimony to pan the camera around the room and to pan the camera what is right in front of the witness so that we can have a confidence level that the witness is testifying from his or her memory. We require the witness to keep the camera and the mic on at all times. We require the witness to look into the camera so the witness is not looking around. So really what we did was we tried to think of every variable and, and how we could overcome those challenges. And, and that is what, those are the things that we laid out in the guide. Do you think, you know, it's one thing when there's a judge on the line and can order a witness to do all those things, but it's been difficult sometimes to take depositions virtually because it's harder to control the witness. You know, I'm used to having witnesses come to my office, sit in a conference room and get deposed. They're sitting in their own offices. They have three computer screens on and a phone. They're looking around. They're looking at things. Do you think attorneys are entitled to lay out that same kind of litany for a witness in a deposition and require their focused attention? Absolutely, because it's a sworn proceeding and you use that testimony one way or not at trial. So there should be no difference. And if you're, if you're not having compliance, then you should bring that to the judge's attention so that the judge can so order a stipulation where the attorneys agree that this is what the expectation is. So that's, that's an excellent point. Okay, thank you for that. You know, and then of course, there's the other factor of testimony, which is, and I've been doing this for 30 years, we develop certain ways of moving around the courtroom, certain ways of moving closer or farther from a witness, depending on what question you're asking. And it's impeded when it's on camera I think you have to develop new skills and new tools to accommodate to the technology, right? Absolutely. There's no way you can move around uh, the attic and be effective when you're questioning a, a witness. So yes, and you and I see each other. I, I know that this is being recorded audio only, but I see your facial expressions and your mannerisms. And then really the face becomes everything. Instead of the, the gate and the walking around, the face and the eye contact and, and the movement of all of the facial muscles becomes important. Yeah, I've noticed throughout the pandemic that when people use video and they do it behind a podium as if they were standing in a courtroom, it's much less effective than if they use the camera on their face close up. Again, because you have to accommodate to the technology. I agree. I agree. To stand by behind a, a podium during a virtual proceeding looks staged and it doesn't look natural. Now, you said we started off on Skype for business. I think the New York State court system has moved to Microsoft Teams, if I understand it, right? Yes, that's the platform we're using. And it's an incredible platform. And, and most of us feel it has the best of Zoom and, and the best of Skype for business. And one feature that has recently become uh, used by all of the courts is a breakout room. So if during the proceeding, an attorney needs to speak to a client or the court needs to speak to the attorneys, they can then enter a breakout room where the rest of the participants do not hear or see what is happening. So it's a, that's a, it's a, it's a great added technological feature. I would think you use that for sidebars too. Absolutely, sidebars. And, it, and it's fantastic for... ADR, which is Alternative Dispute Resolution Mediation, settlement conferences, because the court can enter the breakout room with one of the attorneys and then come back in and speak to the other attorney separately. So it's a great feature. 
I'll, uh, I'll tell you a quick funny story. So two days ago, I'm arguing an appeal in the appellate division first department virtually. I'm the very last case on the docket. So it's five o'clock plus when they get to me. And my significant other is downstairs starting to cook dinner. So I get up, I'm the appellant. I say, may it please the court and welcome to my attic, which is my opening because I'm trying to get a laugh. And I get a little <laughs> chuckle. And the fire alarm goes off. Uh, oh, no. Because of the cooking downstairs. Oh, no. I've got four appellate division justices on my screen. <laughs> and the fire alarm goes off. And one of them said, I, I heard him, uh, her say under her breath, I can't wait till we're back in court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does have its challenges. And I have to say that I see where you are broadcasting from. And it does not look like an attic. It looks very cozy. But the only thing I will say is you have a typewriter, which most people won't even remember what that is. So those are the things that we keep in our attic, frankly. So that's the only indication to me that you're in an attic. Yeah. In my defense, I also have an electric guitar. So, you know, I have multiple things. <laughs> but anyway, the you know, the, the fire alarm, fortunately, it went off and I just segued back into the argument and we had the argument and everything went fine. But the reality is with people litigating from home, testifying from home, adjudicating from home, there are going to be surprises and we're all going to have to work to deal with it, right? There are glitches. And as part of a virtual pretrial conference, the court will engage the parties in discussions about making sure if someone drops off of the feed that it's indicated, if the feed is lost, there needs to be a backup plan in terms of communication, whether it be everyone having each other's cell phone number or email address. So there will be glitches. The benefit, though, is that you save time on travel, right? You can handle more matters in a day than you could otherwise. If you had that matter in the appellate division, first department, Manhattan, say you needed to argue in the second department half an hour later in Brooklyn, and you had a federal matter in Central Islip, you could legitimately handle all of those three matters in the morning. So that is one of the benefits in terms of travel time, and you can be in multiple places, multiple states in the morning. And that leads me naturally to my next point, because people are getting vaccinated. My group is up soon, I hope. And, you know, there will come a time, I think, when even we get to put the masks aside. But my perception is that these virtual court proceedings are here to stay. Do you agree with that? The chief judge has indicated that the virtual technology is a new tool in all judges' toolbox boxes. And so where appropriate and where needed, it can be used and should be used. So it's not, it's not going away. Do I think it will be used as frequently as much as it is now? No. But I think many judges, you couldn't make it to federal court that morning and you make an application to the judge and now we're back in the real world and you say, can I appear by teams? And the judge has the discretion to say yes. So I, I think it is always going to be a tool. I think certain bench trials can still move forward as virtual. If there's a reason that they cannot, then of course it would be in person. So I, I think it'll be used into the future and we all have become versed in it, which is nice. I always say that in January of last year, I meet with all of the judges in Nassau County at the beginning of the year, 
if in that meeting I said to them, in two years, I'd like everyone to get involved in technology and learn how to operate Skype or Zoom or Teams uh, within two years and become technologically savvy, I would have gotten laughed out of that meeting. And we did it in less than six months because we needed to do it. Right. And I really like it for conferences because you schedule a conference for a particular time, you dial in and you have it. It gets you past, you know, some courts, you come in for a conference in the morning and you're in a room with 20 cases waiting your turn. And that's costly for the client and inefficient. So I do see a lot of opportunities for the technology to be used going forward. I agree. And, and we'd, we'd love to do that. Do you, have there been any virtual jury trials? Is that even something the courts would contemplate? There have been none in New York State. I know that there was an attempt to have a virtual jury trial in Texas, and the challenges are that you don't have control over the jurors as to what they're doing. Are they paying attention? Where are they? At one point, I believe the judge looked at the screen and the juror had left the immediate area, was in the background barbecuing. So those are the challenges. I think that the only way you can do a virtual jury trial is if all of the jurors are in one location and do it streaming with uh, proper uh, separation, six feet between them and PPE, you know, obviously you would need a big room. But I, I don't believe, I don't think you can do a, a virtual jury trial and have jurors in separate locations. Yeah, I have to say, you know, even just doing voir dire, the personal contact of being able to walk up and talk to a juror is so important to me. I can't imagine doing that online and having the same kind of efficacy at all. Uh, that's that personal contact, uh, you know, eye to eye, that's irreplaceable. Well, this has been great. I'm so glad uh, that you've come on to talk to us about this. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background. I happen to know that we both went to Hofstra Law School a That's couple right. of years apart. Excellent law school. And I want to, it is, and I want to thank Dean Gail Prudente, herself, the former chief judge, chief administrative judge in New York for helping connect us to do this. And she's doing a really a, amazing job with that school. Absolutely. She's the dean of the law school and she's doing phenomenal. She is, is always has been a superstar. So I, I practiced as a litigation attorney for about 16 years before coming to the bench. Part of that time, I was a Nassau County assistant district attorney under Dennis Dillon. I worked as a, a partner in a Wall Street firm, uh, and I also was an associate in a litigation firm in Garden City. And so uh, that's 16 years of litigation and then being on the bench 17 years. It, sounds, it seems like just yesterday, I started as a district court judge in Hempstead. And I was there for four years. Then I was elected to the county court, which is all felony criminal cases. Uh, and I sat as a county court judge for 10 years and have been a Supreme Court justice for going on uh, almost four years now. When I was uh, a county court judge, chief administrative judge of New York State, Gail Prudenti appointed me to supervise the district court, which is where I had been a, a sitting judge. So I was supervising that court for about six years. And this is my third year being the administrative judge of all the courts in Nassau County. I enjoy it every day. I enjoy trying cases. I would always like to be on trial every week. Most times when I was trying cases, I would try in a given year, 
about 44 to 45 trials um, because that's what I enjoyed. And I actually thought I would be able to try cases in the administrative role, but the day-to-day challenges are so immense that my focus has to be on making sure the courts are running and, and assisting all the judges in bringing about justice. So that I enjoy it. I have enjoyed it. And we look forward to getting back to normalcy in the courts, knowing that we have this we have this ace in our pocket, which is the ability to always conduct matters virtually. Yeah. And yeah, I, I hadn't mentioned yet, you know, that the New York court system was able to do this is amazing, but that it was able to do this in the midst of really unprecedented budget cuts to the state judiciary. That too should be lauded because there were massive cuts last year. We lost a lot of good judges and it really has challenged the whole judiciary system in the state of New York. It really has. And, and that is as a function of New York State losing the revenue because of the pandemic. And then therefore, the judiciary budget is part of the New York State budget. Uh, so we took a, a basically a 10% cut in the budget. And, and that, that has strained the system. We're hoping moving forward to get some federal relief. And uh, we're hoping for a, a productive budget next year where we can start dealing with all the attrition that we've seen over the past year. All right. So in this podcast, we finish like we do in court. We have a closing argument. That's how I end every episode. How would you sum up what's a good takeaway for our listeners on the status of virtual trials and virtual proceedings in the New York state court system? The courts never shut down. We've always been in operation. We're moving to a point with all of the vaccines being distributed where we're starting back with a lot more in-person proceedings. On March 22nd, we will start jury trials back throughout the state. So we're excited and looking forward to that. And hopefully, you know, the president says by uh, July, everyone should be vaccinated. We hope that that's the case so that this summer into the fall, we're back in full swing operations in the court with 100 percent in-person proceedings and virtual as needed. All right. Judge Norman St. George, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and hear more about the state of virtual proceedings. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. Law Brief.